<sighs> How you doing? One of those days again, eh? Is it? Nah, it's no big deal. Nobody knows. You know, somebody's downloading this podcast as they get set to walk their dog, and it was there right when they needed it, and it's no big deal. I'm, I'm caught. Uh, good morning, everybody. Ryan Jesperson, John Hicks with you. This edition of Real Talk, it's April 21st. It's the eve of Earth Day. It is. And we have a, we have a great panel coming up tomorrow, a Real Talk roundtable that was already booked that... that, that kind of doesn't have anything to do with Earth Day. So <laughs> so we want to do justice uh, to this sort of annual recognition the, where, where we, uh, what do we say, we inspect our respect for our planet. I like that. Is that what we do on Earth Day? That's a good tagline. I'm going to be putting you on the spot in just a second, by the way. I'm going to ask you a question, same question that I'm asking uh, folks on Twitter this morning, and we'll see where this goes. But I want to know how people approach this. So as as uh, we sit here on the eve of Earth Day, or what do we call it, like Earth Week? I saw somebody referring to it as that. We examine how we treat planet Earth, how we approach things like conservation discussions around this planetary protection. We've got a great roundtable coming up today. We're going to talk to a fierce advocate for, uh, we wanted to focus on like what's happening in our backyard as well. I'm curious to know mm. what happens where we live. And so we're going to talk to a, an advocate for Edmonton's River Valley. She's fighting a solar farm. You might yeah. go, wait a second, I thought solar was good. What's, what's so bad about solar? We're going to find out. That's coming up in about a half hour's time. And then we're going to learn about the implications of facial recognition technology, AI on the battlefield. A fascinating conversation coming up Super with Katrina Ingram, right? That's going to be great. Are you, well, here's the question I asked folks on, on Twitter this morning. Will you be doing something specific to recognize Earth Day 2022? Um, so far, we've got 27 votes, so it's, it's early. I just posted it. 70% of people are being very honest, and they've chosen the, the option, honestly, no. Will you be doing something specific to recognize Earth Day? The, the options are yes, honestly, no, or every day is Earth Day. That's what 30% of people are saying. How about you? I'm on that train. Every day is Earth Day. But me and my wife, my wife is a big, uh, you know, into uh, recycling and how we can, uh, you know, uh, continue to refine how we uh, help the planet. So I'm sure we do that every Earth Day. Are we doing everything we can? Obviously, our little townhouse isn't solar, but, you know, everything we can do in our home to to make uh, the Earth a better place will be a going through all that i'm sure you know townhouses could be powered by solar john i know it is possible hey i just, I just got back give me a little time <laughs> you haven't completely transformed the energy consumption of the building that you're living How in dare you but i wonder like if earth day actually prompts people you know as they're as they're looking through this week and looking ahead to earth days is, is is it the week where you'd swap over the light bulbs in your house if you haven't done exactly. that or is it the week where you might Look to fix up, I don't know, the energy efficiency of your home somewhere. Fix that draft under that one window or do something a little bit bigger. 100%. I think my wife, like right now, she's going around the house today. It's funny you say that and kind of checking. Is that right? Uh, you know, are all the lights LED? Are they smart? Can we make them last longer, et cetera? She's so. doing an audit. She is. She's there doing an Earth Day audit. Well, I do have good <laughs> news that since uh, we last took a look at the poll, we now have 45 votes. And now... Uh, up from 0%, 2% of respondents say they will be doing something specific to recognize Earth Day. So Amazing. we've got a great edition of Real great. Talk coming up on the eve of Earth Day 2022. This is presented, this show, by our friends at Bitcoin Well. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the environmental impacts of Bitcoin mining. It's a thing, and it's an important conversation to have, and it's not a conversation that the team at Bitcoin Well has shied away from. There's a lot going on with regards to some of the, the the technology that's being used to make cryptocurrency mining, Bitcoin mining in particular, more eco-friendly. It's all over everybody's radar because people care about this kind of stuff. If you want a specific answer or more information on what's being done exactly and what Bitcoin Well is participating in specifically, you can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I've got a response to my tweet where I said, if, if you're going to be doing something for Earth Day, detail below. Let us know what you'll be doing. And uh, an anonymous uh, Twitter user has replied, I'll celebrate Earth Day right after the Earth has get Russia the F out of Ukraine day. And so, okay, that's a, that's a fair enough point. Maybe sometimes when bigger things are going on or things that feel like, you know, have more immediate consequence, we don't focus on the other stuff. I saw somebody the other day saying, how on earth is Coachella putting on a big music festival as the world burns around them? <laughs> right. I kind of had mixed feelings about that take, though. So did I. 
I thought that maybe sometimes you need stuff like Coachella or whatever floats your boat. Yeah. We need happiness. Take your mind off all of the horrible stuff. We have reminders all the time that the world's in crisis, and that includes Earth Day. So what's so bad about Coachella? I don't know. I wasn't at Coachella personally, but I kind of had that. That that was kind of one a take on that. I went. I don't know if I can align with that one. I could do a list of things that are wrong with Coachella, but they have nothing to do with Earth. Nothing to do with Earth Day or the war in Ukraine. It's just just more Coachella in person. Hey. Well, we're going to be taking a look. As mentioned, Earth Day is uh, tomorrow. And, of course, we want you to be uh, sort of mentally prepared to maybe evaluate it in your own context. What are you doing uh, to recognize Earth Day? What are you doing to protect planet Earth? So we did a bit of digging, and we wanted to find out what, what researchers in Canada, in particular in our home province of Alberta, are doing to better our planet. And we're grateful that three of them have agreed to make themselves available today, today, tomorrow, and over the next few days. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, people are going to be wanting to hear these types of stories. And that's why we're eager to hear from Dr. Jeffrey Farner. He's an assistant prof in environmental engineering at the University of Alberta. His research focuses on small particles. This is the stuff that really troubles me. These stories you hear about these floating plastic islands and things like this. That's probably the biggest one for me. So too. Dr. Farner's looking at microplastics and nanoplastics. And we'll find out about this plastic specifically in water in order to understand how they behave, where they go and the impact they may have on the environment. This isn't just like shopping bags. This is bigger picture than that. Uh, Jared Gonet is an indigenous Ph.D. student. Jared, did I pronounce your last name? Okay. It's usually Gonet. Gonet. Then uh, pardon me. Jared Gonet is an indigenous researcher out of the U of A as well. Um, who's an expert in conservation methods, including the integration of indigenous worldviews and how they can work with or alongside more Western ideas of conservation. Uh, Jared is a Taku River Tlingit citizen. And uh, Dr. Evan Davis is a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the U of A, interested in water resources planning and management, looking at, at city river basin and global scales and so they're working on computer models simulation tools they're developing models for uh, to dictate or to inform provincial and national energy and climate policy fascinating stuff from these three uh jared why don't we start with you when we talk about integrating indigenous methods and more western methods we had a fascinating conversation a number of months ago uh, in this same context around wildfire management how are you specifically applying your knowledge and your research right so i'm generally working at the more governance level with say wildlife management as they say but it'd be more talking about shifting a lot of the terminology a lot of the language we use around that just to begin with, so actually it's not wildlife management, we'd be like forming wildlife relationships. Ah. Uh, we wouldn't say the terms like use or resources, because from an indigenous perspective, that doesn't generally make sense, especially I work with more northern nations. Do you, Have you found that there's been um, an evolution in, in sort of the mainstream attitudes around conservation or how we approach issues uh, related to the environment and the world around us, uh, as as awareness has grown, as more research like yours has occurred, do you notice a change? I'd say there's a pretty big shift right now. Um, maybe in the past like five or ten years, there's been a, you know a lot of change. And it's like as the awareness has grown, there's more a more need for indigenous uh, leadership and indigenous, indigenous partnerships and conservation. That's really been taking off in conservation. I look forward to circling back, and I want to talk specifically in the wildlife context in just a moment. Uh, Dr. Farner, when we talk about plastics and plastics in water, I think a lot of people have seen the images uh, on the nightly news. They've seen these big, huge floating islands. I heard once that there's a, a plastic island the size of Texas floating around in the ocean. But these microplastics, these nanoplastics, this is probably more of an issue than most people might realize, right? Yeah, it's really an unknown. I mean, I think everybody has this idea that it's it's a bad thing if a sea turtle eats a plastic bag, right? Um, the question that we're trying to figure out is once that plastic bag breaks down into these micro-sized, nano-sized plastics, where it's not just going to get stuck in the digestive tract, maybe these particles actually enter into the organism. What effect that has um, if there's chronic long-term issues associated with that, because we know that that bag is going to break down. So really it comes down to 
where do those particles go and what impact do they have? So when we talk about microplastics or nanoplastics, or we're, we're talking about the sort of tiny little particles all the way through to the microscopic stuff that we can we can barely see. How, do, how does plastic get to this state? What's the root of the problem, really? Right. So in general, we're just talking about the same thing, largely at different scales of size. Right. So that that sheet of plastic that you have or that plastic that gets littered into the environment, that's going to break down and just release smaller parts of itself. Um, and there are going to be some some transformations that occur. But those smaller parts then can also break down from from kind of a particle that you can hold into these these small images like you showed smaller than your fingertip down to smaller than you can see. And so it's really we're we're talking about the same base material um, when we think about plastics, but we're thinking about, okay, when it gets to these smaller sizes, can it, in, can it pass through membranes? Can it pass into cells? Can it, can it move through organisms and be uptaken um, by things like fish? Is the answer yes to this point based on your the answer is yes to this point. Yes. Okay, well, um, yeah. There's a lot we don't know, but we do have evidence even in humans. Um, we're starting to get some, some idea that um, there may be translocation. Um, but certainly in aquatic environments, we see that a lot. Hmm. So there's plastics in water and then there are of course a myriad of other water issues or water related focuses that we could pursue, uh, leading up to earth day, professor Davis, this is your wheelhouse too, right? But you're talking big picture. Uh, you're, you're talking river basins and, and we're talking water flow out of the Canadian Rockies and, and water management into different communities, right? Like big picture stuff. Can you help us understand how that applies to how you might view a day like Earth Day tomorrow? Yeah, so Jeff was talking about some of the, the micro scale problems with microplastics. Uh, what I focus on is sort of the exact opposite. So the smallest sort of scale that I'm interested in is something like a cubic meter, which is about a thousand, well, exactly a thousand liters. And so we measure river flows in, in cubic meters per second. Uh, and if we're looking at municipalities, then they consume uh, multiple millions of cubic meters per year. And if we're looking at irrigation, for example, they consume you know, hundreds of thousands of, of cubic millimeters per year. In fact, uh, in the order of billions of cubic meters a year. Uh, and so it's, it's exactly the other, the other side of the scale. Um, one of the projects we've been working on recently is looking at water use at a global scale and how much water is actually moved by global trade in agricultural commodities, for example. And it turns out to be really, really huge volumes of water. Um, Alberta is, is actually a large exporter of agricultural products, which means that in a sense, we're exporting water, you know, in, in the water that's required to produce those crops. Is it fair to say that the average person doesn't really think a lot about water use? I mean, I think that if we if we have that sort of annoying like drip, drip, drip of the leaky faucet, we know we should fix it. And and oftentimes people will get that done or, or we try to turn the tap off while we're brushing our teeth. Wait till we rinse the toothbrush off. But but generally speaking, I mean, we fire up our sprinklers for like 40 minutes to keep our lawns. We do all kinds of things, right? Run the washing machine for three dress shirts, right? Yeah, it's, and yet, you know, at a, at a personal scale, we don't actually use that much water. We use on, on the order of say 200 liters per person per day. Uh, where we use a lot more water is in industrial processes, in energy processes, and in agriculture. Uh, and so, you know, as a human society, we use a huge amount of water, but we don't have to feel particularly guilty, I think, about using water in our households. It is always a good idea, for example, to take shorter rather than really long showers and to, you know, turn off the, the faucet while you're brushing your teeth and so on. But, you know, if everyone in Edmonton turned off the faucet while they were brushing their teeth, it would have an, an effect. But a much larger effect would come from, you know, running your sprinkler for 20 minutes rather than, you know, an hour outdoors or longer. Hmm. Jared, I, we've got a uh, Erica's watching live on YouTube right now, and she says, I love these topics. She says, I recently wrote a paper on incorporating traditional indigenous healing methods into Western medicine. Erica says there's more mutual benefit 
than people realize. Uh, in the context of reconciliation, do you notice a change in people's attitudes or desire to see that integration into your area of study? Like, do you note a groundswell among the, the members of the general public that are starting to make your expertise and the, 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 the rich history of indigenous methods uh, more of a regular integration or, or an integral part, a pillar of policy moving forward? Do you see it? So I say there's like a, some of a shift with that, and that has to do too with, um, you know, Candace signed on to UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And so there's a lot of push for that from a more government level, and that's starting to come down to more, you know, the regular, regular day people, but also then hearing the stories about, you know, the, uh, the residential school, children being found, that kind of shifts things and people start to think about it more so do you notice some shift hmm. it's uh i, I want to recognize uh, again just yesterday and i saw the prime minister just issued a statement on it the, the discovery of of more uh unmarked graves outside a former residential school in saskatchewan it, it's it's the type of uh i don't know what to call it other than a gut punch i think that canadians see that that mainstream like millions of canadians i think are feeling like there needs to be a meaningful response here and meaningful action in ways that i'm not sure there was before and we've had a long conversation on this show about how these are reminders uh, to canadians that these atrocities existed right these are not necessarily discoveries but reminders in a sense what does it do for you personally as a researcher and as an indigenous man i mean the news yesterday and this is far from the first revelation. Does it motivate you personally? I would say motivates me personally. Um, I mean, it puts everything into a little bit more context because when you're working on these issues, there's like a lot of social problems in a lot of communities. And um, I think it helps most people be more understanding. Uh, for myself, I guess it just helps me understand a lot, a lot of things a bit better, especially at this wider scale. Hmm. We often say on this show we, that that premise or that idea of seeking to understand. Um, Dr. Farner, is that is that part of what motivates you? I mean, with regards to when you when you take a look towards tomorrow and the entire planet will perhaps pause or not. Let's let's drop in maybe on our live chat and see where this is at right now. Uh, rather on our on our unofficial unscientific Twitter poll. We're asking if people are going to do something specific to recognize Earth Day 2022. 65 percent, two out of three, uh, honestly replying right now saying not. Nah, we're not really going to do anything specific. Uh, Jeffrey, do you do you find that something like Earth Day uh, creates an impetus or a reminder or a mile marker along the way for, for people to take a look at things like plastic use or like pollution and try to maybe make a change in their personal lives? Yeah, um, I think Earth Day is, is great as this reminder, kind of as you mentioned. Um, the issue is a lot of these things that we're talking about are or need to be kind of these recurring actions or way we set up systems um, in order to kind of tackle these problems. So from the standpoint of Earth Day, let's all like concentrate or think about, okay, maybe I can do some reflection and like, how do I set up my life or how do I establish um, like the best way to kind of honor the earth and things like this? I think that's great. Um, but I think when we're talking about pollution sources or, or things like this, we need to think about the systems that come into place that would limit plastics entering the environment, for example, mm. or, or kind of keep this at the, at the base level as opposed to like almost a, a one-off. Are you talking about things like plastic bag bans in municipalities or? Um, yeah, I think from the standpoint of limiting inputs into the environment. So that could be through rethinking how we use plastics. I mean, plastics are an unmitigated, or maybe not unmitigated, but overall plastics are amazing. They have improved our quality of life. Um, I'm not anti-plastic, but I think we need to reconsider maybe, does it make sense to use them as single use entities that then get discarded? Um, because those might be the high likelihood um, things that get, get littered into um, rivers and lakes or things like this. Um, and maybe just consider how we use material in general. 
um, and what it's designed for. You mentioned single-use plastics. What's something uh, I can think of a specific product uh, in, in my own life? I'll talk about it later. I won't waste your time. But but what's something that you see around you as a plastics researcher, as an expert in this? What's something that you see that just drives you nuts? Um, something that just drives me nuts. That's a that's a good. I think when you think about if you go for a walk and you see plastic litter and a big thing at the moment are like the face masks that we've seen. And a lot of those are just scattered about and they get blown about by the wind. So they're kind of novel. So we, we pick up on them. Um, you see them more than maybe you see other things that you're more used to. And I think at the moment, that's, that's one of the things that it's the sudden input because of the current um, situation. But I, I'm shocked by how much, how many of those masks don't get discarded properly. Mm. Yeah. Fair point. Everybody sees it all around us. Right. Uh, Dr. Davis, this is, uh, I mean, when you talk about sort of like the future of conservation, I love that, that we have uh, Jared talking about what he's doing. Um, bigger pictures. I mean, there's, there's so many angles to, to analyze or discuss the future of conservation. Your computer models uh, and, and the research that you're you're uh, participating in, you're leading with with students as well. Um, I think would fascinate a lot of people. People that want to get some insight into how we understand things like water demand projections or what the future of water demand might look like. Can you take us into it, like at a layperson's level, how that works, and maybe some of the early things that you've been able to determine about where this is trending when it comes to how we interact with water on planet Earth. Well, we use a lot of water as a, as a global society. Uh, there's an estimate that there's about 37,000 cubic kilometers of water that circulate uh, globally on an, on an annual basis. Uh, and humanity uses somewhere upwards of 10% of, of that total amount of water. Uh, the amount of water that we've used, that, that we used in 1900 has increased at least sevenfold to the present day. Uh, and, and so it's a real question, how much more we'll be using in 2050, 2075, 2100. Uh, and so some of the, the topics that I'm interested in are projecting those water uses under different policies. So if, if we think about policies at a municipal level, which is where we're probably most familiar with them, uh, we know about water rationing, for example, when, when water becomes scarce in the summer. Or we might be told, for example, that our water bills are going up. And one way of controlling how much water we use is by charging us more for it. Uh, and so those are some types of policies. But there are also policies that occur at, for irrigation uses and policies for industrial uses. All of those can be changed over time and, and they can drive up water use or, or drive it down. And the biggest effect, I think, is actually technology. And so if we look at, uh, at our households, for example, back in 1950, we had really high flow shower heads. It was like a, a deluge of water coming out of our shower heads, yeah. right? And now we have these low flow shower heads, just about 75% of households have those now. Uh, but, you know, for washing machines, for example, the, the decrease in water use has been really significant over the last 10 years as we've replaced some of the older top loaders with the with the much more efficient front load uh, systems, and so what some of my research does is try to use some of these changes that are occurring in policy and changes that are occurring in technology, and use those with our models to project water use forward per person, and then we have population change, of course, for cities like Edmonton and Calgary. That means we're using more water all the time. And then we have factors like climate change that cause it to be hotter in the summer, for example. And then we need to water our lawns more. And uh, people probably noticed last year, for example, it rained a lot less. And so combined with that increased heat and the decreased rain, we were using a lot more water for our lawns than, than we would have been in a wetter year, you know, two or three years ago. Let me generally, and, and I'll keep the question general, but I'll ask you to get a little bit political as much as you're willing to, uh, you know, people, people often talk, you know, you'll see like the bumper stickers of the t-shirt that water is the new oil. And we understand that, that in so many ways, as many of us live on a 
geographical footprint that is rich in natural resources, we understand that in the context of oil and gas, that you might say the same thing about water in this part of the world, and in particular in Canada. And I think that it flies under the radar of the general population, some of the deals that happen with regards to access to water and with regards to the commercialization of those water resources and what the future might look like. Are you confident or concerned in the direction that the politics of water resource management are moving? I think Alberta, by and large, does a pretty good job. Um, our largest water user in the south, which is where water is relatively scarcer, is the irrigation districts. And they're actually very good at, at sharing the water with, with the communities, particularly in times of, of water shortages. Uh, it concerns me more what's going on in places like California, for example, where all of these different water users are, are at loggerheads. So you've got the environmentalists, you have irrigators and you have municipalities and none of them wants to give up any water for, for anyone else. And, and so, you know, that worries me because if you think about what we eat in the winter, most of what we eat is grown in California and water is definitely getting scarcer there. There's, there's the question of whether we're entering a new sort of long-term drought in, in the Southern United States. That's where a huge amount of our food comes from. Hmm. Jared, in closing, I wanted to we, we, we took a look at your Twitter profile. Uh, people can look at it at Jared Gonett if, if they want to see this photo. It's a really neat one. Uh, maybe you can explain. It looks like it was shot through a telescope or something like that. But you, you highlight the caribou of the Ibex herd above Luzil Man Lake, uh, otherwise known as Fish Lake near Whitehorse. You say this is one of the few mountain caribou herds who have recovered over the past 40 years or so, a testament to co-management. Can, can you shine some light on that story? Explain to us maybe why that was successful or how co-management played into the success of that herd? Sure. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty long story, but a good one. I'll try to make it quick. So about 30 years ago now, um, there's six nations in that area and they saw that the herds were declining. So they all got together and they put a voluntary harvest ban because uh, the elders were very concerned about the herd. And so the First Nations have basically not harvested for 30 years to try to help, help that herd recover. And there's been a lot of uh, co-efforts by the governments there to think about how to protect the habitat, protect caribou from collisions on the road. So that process has been ongoing and it's been a really successful, successful story. And currently they're working on a not a caribou management plan, but a caribou relationship plan. And this sort of gets at that issue that we need to change the way we relate to the world, um, say just on a human to natural world basis. And that should be done pretty soon, but it's really an indigenous led initiative. It's, uh, it's amazing how like talking to you, I'm already kind of checking my language, like, uh, you know, for even referring to it as a caribou relationship plan. Yeah, uh, it I, I know, you know, this already, but it's fascinating how simply tweaking that one word, right, like uh, eliminating or refraining from using words like use or management and integrating relationship dramatically transforms how you approach the subject matter. Yeah, and that's like sort of key to this uh, thinking about how indigenous worldviews and more Eurocentric, Euro-created Euroviews might come together. Yeah. It's like finding the ways that those little shifts in like uh, terms can really change the outcome. Yeah, dramatically. That's going to be one of the things that I remember from Earth Week for me 2022 is, is language. Uh, I'm really grateful that the three of you were able to make time for us and, and even more grateful uh, for the work that you're all doing. Uh, Dr. Evan Davis, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Farner, and Jared Gonett doing great things as we lead up to and celebrate Earth Day 2022. Thanks for your availability here on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. You can let us know what you're doing, what your family's doing. That's Isn't that cool? That, that like Just changing the language, getting away from words like use and management and integrating words like relationship. It, it does something to your psyche, right? Doesn't it? It does. And it goes back to uh, Wakefield yesterday. Changing your language. It Wakefield means a lot. Wakefield Brewster, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, I just, oh, I wish, I wish this show today, those guests could have been. Can we make the show three hours? Can yeah. we, can we up it, John? <laughs> John, <laughs> we do our best. Um, 
there's so much to talk about. We could have gone Wakefield. If you missed our conversation yesterday with Calgary's poet Laurie, it was somewhat interrupted. It was interrupted like 18 minutes in, something like that, with a, a Wi-Fi issue on his end. And he, he wrote back to me later. Even his even his disappointment. Let me try to call this up on my phone really quick. Uh, his even in in communicating his disappointment that the the uh, signal dropped out was poetic. <laughs> he wrote me back and he said it was feeling so good. I was honestly crushed when it crashed. Poetry is everything to me. Yeah. And I was like, that's just a text he's writing to some guy, and it's poetry. It's unbelievable. If you missed that, uh, you can check out yesterday's show anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, of course, on demand on YouTube anytime. Thanks to those that like and subscribe and support our show along the way. In just a second, we're going to find out what uh, a group is doing in our neck of the woods locally uh, to fight for, they say, help protect Edmonton's River Valley. But he- here's the thing that's kind of ironic about it, and, and I'll get into it with our guest, is is that they're, they're fighting against a solar farm, which you might go, well, isn't that kind of counterintuitive in, in, in the context of conservation or Earth Day? But we'll find out why. That's coming up in just a second. Right now, this feels like a perfect time when we're talking about water use to remind you what Eden Landscaping is working on these days. I mean, they've been in the business for more than 20 years, still family-owned, but instead of that big, sprawling front lawn that just uses a ton of water all the time, why not transform your outdoor space into an area that's good for the soul, an area that's good for our climate, in an area that's good for our ecosystem. They're calling it the Urban Butterfly Yard Approach. You can check out their website at landscapeedmonton.ca. It's where you can check out the portfolio. You can check out all the services that they offer. This is a landscape they're developing that reflects local plant species and, and incredibly important pollinators, right? That need a habitat that goes or thinks beyond just a lawn. Bring back the purpose to your yard. Make it useful for something other than your lawnmower. You can find Eden Landscaping again online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Real Talk is proud to be the opening night presenting sponsor at Northwest Fest 2022. This is Canada's longest running documentary film festival opening night. That's Friday, May 6th. Who are you going to call? The story of the legendary artist who brought the Ghostbusters song to the world, but the massive success of that song overshadowed the incredible career of Ray Parker Jr. Now, he's going to be in attendance at this screening. So will Fran Strine, the film's director. I'm going to be hosting it. I'm excited already. There's going to be implications for our Patreon supporters getting their hands on tickets. If you want to get past the line, you want to figure out and guarantee your tickets to Northwest Fest running May 5th through the 15th, you can check them out online right now at northwestfest.ca. And our friends at Local Environmental, I like this. They did the big brand evolution over the past couple of months just in time for earth day tomorrow if you're looking at environmental solutions to your business perhaps your property or maybe even it's just an event you want to handle it in a way that's friendly to your pocketbook and friendly to the planet local environmental services is right there for you family owned for more than 25 years in alberta and saskatchewan recycling services residential waste and recycling management landfill services vacuum trucks fencing portable toilets and the rest you can find it at localenvironmental.ca and don't forget tomorrow trash talk right here on real talk send us your trash talk presented by local environmental to talk at ryanjesperson.com coming up in about 10 minutes we're going to talk to katrina ingram she's the ceo of ethically aligned ai and i'm looking forward to that conversation we're going to take a look at this clearview ai facial recognition technology that's coming into play ukraine's defense ministry is using it but there's some controversy around the technology and we want to make sure that we understand the nuance of that story that's coming up in just a few minutes but first a story close to home for us a proposed solar farm is seeing some pushback from an organization that says it's up to them to protect edmonton's river valley christine kowalchuk is the uh executive director christine that's right is, is that what, what's your title with uh with this uh this group here protecting edmonton's river valley i mean you're you're the one right at the top you're the one driving this fight um i'm the chair the of chair. the edmonton river valley conservation coalition i'm not driving it it's a it's a big group of people 
And uh, we think it's Edmontonians collective mm. um, responsibility to stand up for the River Valley. This is, I know, a story that's very familiar to some people and other folks might have no idea what we're talking about. And they might go, well, in conversations around Earth Day, what's what's wrong with solar farms? Why, why, why do we want to oppose this solar farm? Can you tell us about what the proposal is, where it's going to go and why you're so concerned about it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, solar is great. We, we are um, fully supportive of solar. It just has to go in the right location. And uh, we don't feel that the River Valley is the right location for it. Um, in 2020, City Council approved the rezoning of 99 acres of River Valley Parkland in West Edmonton, just inside the Anthony Henday, um, next to the E.L. Smith water treatment plant um, for this project. And um, what we opposed at the time was the fact that City Council didn't De didn't subject this project to the River Valley bylaw, which is the one piece of legislative protection we have in the city um, that was set up precisely to protect the River Valley. And um, that bylaw says that any major project has to be deemed as, um, essential in a River Valley location, essentially, um, in order to go there. And yeah, city council didn't do this deeming. Um, so we filed for a judicial review in 2020 um, and then this January, uh, the judge ruled on that uh, on that that claim and said, "Well, you know, too bad because the province already approved the project, and um, our municipal government act says that provincial um, decisions take precedent, and that's all true." Um, but the provincial decision said the project would be subject to the River Valley bylaw, so that brings us right back to to where we are. So we're, we are planning to appeal this decision. For people that are seeing this on YouTube right now, we'll roll a little bit of a video. Now, the source of the video is, is Epcor, and Epcor is the utility company that hopes to build the solar farm. So that's the context. But it'll show people the area that we're talking about. And, and I'll summarize the, the voiceover of the video where they essentially say uh, this is area that was already set aside for expansion of our water treatment facilities. It's an, it's an area that's covered with non-native vegetation, including noxious weeds. They say that they're going to plant a barrier of trees around that will allow the animal life to continue to thrive in the area. Uh, they essentially say it's kind of not a big deal. And it was set aside for this purpose anyway. It's non-invasive. The environmental impact is on our radar. And we're going to do anything we can to mitigate any sort of negative impact on Edmonton's River Valley. Has there been any sort of a, a collaboration with EPCOR, a desire to meet in the middle or sit down at the table or try to find ways that that the land right now that that almost already appears to be somewhat clear cut, if I may say, that this could proceed in a way that would satisfy both parties? Or is this a non-starter for you in the coalition? Uh, we actually did reach out to EPCOR and met with them before the project was approved and made very clear that we supported solar and would be happy to support this project if it went um, on land that we saw as more appropriate for its location, rooftops and brown fields, all the industrial land that Edmonton has. Um, rather than this piece of land. And, and we don't agree with that characterization of the land. Um, the ecologists who work for the city said that, you know, no, it's actually not, um, you know, worthless land as, as EPCOR suggested. It's actually really rare Aspen parkland habitat of which only 5% remains intact in Canada. Um, and it's characterized by meadows and forests alongside. And, um, you know, that land is not just full of noxious weeds. There are native plants growing there. And um, it's, it's really important habitat. Um, EPCOR put up some wildlife cameras. Uh, I think it was in 2019, 2020. And there were elk on that land. We got a photo of a short-eared owl on that land, which is quite rare. Um, so it, it's actually really important land and um, it's also important, uh, you know, as a wildlife corridor and culturally, the province itself designated that land HRV3, Historical Resource Value 3, which is um, the same designation that much of Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump and Writing on Stone have, mm. um, which are both UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So um, ecologically and culturally, this land is actually extremely uh, important. Um, which is why we're continuing to push back. So, Christine, you and 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 the crew at the Edmonton River Valley Conservation Coalition are appealing to the public, and, and people can check out the website, uh, by the way, for more information. I've got it uh, up on my screen right now if people want to check it out at ervcc.com. Uh, you say keep Edmonton's ribbon of green green. Uh, you're going to be 
planning an appeal, you are planning an appeal to that ruling regarding the solar farm. What are you asking for people to do? I mean, in the context, people are looking at Earth Day tomorrow and people are saying, what's something I can do, something tangible. What would your call to action be? Donate. Please donate and please spread the word. Um, we are, there is a fundraiser that's set up to help us uh, in this effort, in this appeal. Um, we've got a May 1st deadline to, uh, in, to raise the money that we need in order to proceed with the appeal. So we're asking people to please um, help. If they care about the River Valley, they care about conservation of the River Valley, they support solar, but in appropriate places, um, they can donate. And one thing I do just want to add is um, regarding, you know, where solar belongs, we are in a climate crisis, you know, we're talking about Earth Day tomorrow, but we're also in a biodiversity crisis. And um, it, it is so important that we get this right, that, you know, as we proceed with transitioning to green energy, um, that green energy, um, you know, does not destroy nature. And that goes right back to what you just saw on our website, keep the ribbon of green green. Christine, love the passion, respect the advocacy, and appreciate your availability here today uh, on the eve of Earth Day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Ryan, for supporting this cause. Yeah, you Thanks. bet. So again, uh, if this is something that resonates with you, uh, I don't think you have to live in Edmonton in our home city to care about stuff like this. It's an interesting story. You can check out ervcc.com. We're going to talk about AI and war in less than two minutes. When we're talking solar, it makes sense to remind you that you can get your free solar quote today right now at kubienergy.ca. Maybe your action this week on Earth Day, maybe the one thing you do is to go onto Kubi's website and just learn a little bit more about what sustainability or going green might look like in your world. Whether that's solar panels on your garden shed, your barn, Maybe your home. What about your cabin or your cottage? What about your industrial warehouse? Maybe your farm has an opportunity to integrate solar in a way that you hadn't thought about before. The cost is coming down. The efficiency is on its way up. Kubi has Tesla certified installers across BC and Alberta doing small jobs all the way to the really big ones like the convention center you see there on their homepage. You can find them at kubienergy.ca. And don't forget about positive reflections. The first day of every week here on Real Talk, we want to know what filled your bucket. You can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge want to remind you that they're about more than just new vehicle sales. They've got a great selection of pre-owned vehicles online. You can browse them right now from the comfort of your own home, or you can go see them in person. And they're particularly proud of their service department. The relationship doesn't stop when you sign on the dotted line and take the keys. They earn the return business of their customers because they care about your vehicle's performance and your perspective as a customer at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Find them under the Sponsors tab on our website. If you're headed out of town, if you're lucky enough to be blowing the dust off the golf clubs, getting a head start on the season, maybe you're heading down south, I want to encourage you to keep money in your pocket by parking your vehicle at Jet Set Parking when you fly out of EIA. You can find them online at jetsetparking.com. Make your reservation at least 24 hours in advance using the promo code REALTALK. You can park for $7 a day at Edmonton's International Airport. Seven bucks a day! And you can book your parking now for travel till the end of 2022. Make sure you use the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. We turn our attention to international news, obviously, as Russia's attack on Ukraine continues, that eastern assault, eyes of the world on some of the methods being deployed, not just by Russians uh, trying to establish footholds in Ukraine, but by Ukrainian uh, defense forces that are fighting back in ways that many people perhaps didn't see coming. The defiance continues, the world watching, as an announcement this week confirmed by arguably the world's biggest AI company, Clearview AI, that the technology is being used by Ukrainian defense forces, the facial recognition technology to identify Russian soldiers at checkpoints on the battlefield and elsewhere. But the story is not without controversy. And we wanted to make sure that we had as deep an understanding of it as possible. And I'm grateful that Katrina Ingram has agreed to join us. She's the CEO of Ethically Aligned AI. 
She's an expert uh, participating in that Power Ed program at Athabasca U, and she was named this year uh, to the Women in AI Ethics Top 100 list for 2022. Katrina, thanks so much for making time for us, and welcome to Real Talk. Thanks so much, Ryan. Great to be here. Facial recognition technology on the battlefield. To state the obvious, this isn't the type of stuff that uh, armies had at their disposal in World War II or Korea or Vietnam or anywhere else. This is the, the changing face, I suppose, no pun intended, of combat. Absolutely. And it's super controversial, as you've noted, because it's sort of like a controversial company, Clearview AI, um, with a controversial technology, facial recognition, coming into a very controversial application, that of being in a war zone. So we put all that together and it's really causing people to take note and to ask some tough questions. And typically when people are asking tough questions or feeling uneasy, there's usually some kind of ethical issue at play. Can you take us in? I mean, we'll we'll dig into some of the specifics as you lay them out for us. But but generally speaking, what's so controversial about facial recognition software and in particular about Clearview AI? Yeah, it's a great question. Let me start with a little bit of a backstory on who is Clearview AI and why are they controversial? So this is a company that's developed an AI system that uses facial recognition technology. And it's basically a technology that can scan your face and be used to identify you. And Clearview's primary market has been law enforcement agencies. But perhaps what's even more controversial about Clearview is the way that it gathered its data in order to build this technology. So it used a technique called web scraping, and that's essentially going to the internet, scraping photos of people. So this might be people's selfies, their family photos, things that they're posting on social media. It essentially took all of that data, and now it has this massive data set. It's something like 10 billion images of people from all over the world. And it's using that data now to, uh, to assess uh, kind of identity and, and use this in a very controversial way of law enforcement now in the context of a war zone. So when people put their images, of course, on the internet, they're not also thinking, hey, these images are going to be used to train an AI system and used in these controversial ways. So when people found out about that, of course, they were uh, understandably upset. And that led a number of governments to start investigations, including the government of Canada. So the Office of the Privacy Commissioner here in Canada at the federal level joined forces with the Alberta and BC Privacy Commissioners, and they did a, an investigation into Clearview. They published a report late last year, and it was basically this cease and desist order. It basically said, you do not have the right to take these photos of Canadians, use them in your controversial software. And so it's managed to get a ban on using this Clearview AI software in the context of uh, law enforcement in Canada. But what it hasn't been able to do is to have those images removed from the data set. Uh, so the database is there. And I guess this is this is a big part of the story, which is is what Clearview has made available uh, to Ukrainian defense forces, which is is quite literally billions of images, right? Or hundreds of millions of images. Uh, including, I mean, unless you protected yourself better than me, you're the AI expert, you probably did, maybe images of us from, from our social, like everybody that's listening to this, is there a chance that they're included? Absolutely, there's a chance. And there, and really, Ryan, there's no way to know. And so mm. um, I, I don't know. You and I could both be part of this data set. Um, some of the audience today might be in this data set. There really is no way to know. And and part of the, um, part of the issue there is that uh, these practices are not transparent. So a lot of the technology from companies like Clearview is protected under intellectual property laws. And even though they're using our data that they've scraped from the internet, we don't really know what kind of data they have or what exactly is being used. So it's very possible that we're, we're all implicated in this some way. Wow. If we take a look back at what's specifically happening in Ukraine, it's, it's, it's not without controversy, of course, as we've touched on. And you've done a really great job of helping us understand why the bigger picture is controversial. I mean, the entity itself and how the information was gathered or gleaned. But but uh, Johnny, can you load up that tweet for me? This this was an interesting one from from a guy by the name of Anatoly Carlin, uh, who says, you know, Ukraine using Clearview AI, uh, which actively offered its services to weed out dissenters and harass the relatives 
of dead Russian soldiers. Goes on to say, notably, its alt-right origins and connections have been memory-holed. So there's there's process here as well that gets more controversial, depending on your perspective. Uh, what's your take on that? I mean, that that's a little more nuanced, right? The application of it, how it's being used, than the bigger picture of how the company developed the software, developed the capability to employ it. Absolutely. So I think there's a couple of pieces here. And, and so let's talk about the technology itself. Let's talk about how facial recognition technology actually works. So what's happening is that the um, so they're, we're build, they're building a biometric of your face. So they're taking all kinds of measurements of your face. So it could be things like the width between your eyes, the length of your nose, the span of your forehead, scanning your retinas. All of this is used to build this computational map of your face that is then assessed by the software. Now, um, the problem with doing that is sometimes it does not work well. And there's been research that's demonstrated that there are certain groups of people that it does not work well for uh, in particular. So one of the things that it's assessing is skin color. And there was some research done, some rather famous research done by um, a researcher named Dr. Joy Buolamwini, who demonstrated that the software, uh, facial recognition software, does not work well on darker skinned women, as an example. So what you have is the potential for misidentification um, with these systems. It also depends a lot on things like lighting and position of your face. So just as a, a quick demonstration, I'm looking directly at the camera right now. But if I turn my head this way, I look up, I look down, now you have different angles of my face that may not be properly assessed. So you have this potential for kind of a misidentification of someone. And just imagine if you've misidentified someone and contacted their relatives and, and let them know that their loved one was deceased. I mean, I think it's horrific uh, to be using the technology for that kind of thing. It's weaponizing this technology in a really unethical way. Katrina, this you touched on controversy, including law enforcement. And if people Google it, uh, like I did in the couple, of, I, I wanted to sort of have a general understanding before bringing somebody on like you, who sort of is a bit of a big shot in this field. I didn't want my questions to be too ignorant. And I was surprised at how much conversation there has been with regards to specific law enforcement departments. People look at different cities around the world and the stories are relevant, including in Edmonton, where we live. I mean, the Edmonton Journal reporting this was back in 2020, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the, the, the facial recognition program was used on a couple of occasions by city police. And as you mentioned, the privacy commissioner had had looked into that and there were implications there. Is it fear mongering or realistic uh, to envision a world in two or five or 10 years from now where there's some sort of interactive glass in police cruisers or some sort of a heads up display that that as as they sort of roll through the suburbs or as they drive downtown people's faces are being scanned by external lasers coming off those police SUVs and providing information in real time about who's walking down the street or perhaps the most wanted or do you get what I'm saying I mean it, it sounds to me almost like sort of a, a, a an Arnold Schwarzenegger type dystopian Terminator 4 type movie but but is this the future of law enforcement and otherwise I mean it it could be I think it could be if we don't have conversations like this one Ryan where we're really questioning what's going on I'm going to read you a little something from uh, a story that I uh, had found about Clearview. And so back in December, uh, Clearview had been shut out of a number of countries. It wasn't able to do business. And so it's kind of looking for, for ways to expand and, and do some things in some new contexts. And so just a quote from this story, um, increasingly, these photos could be paired with an expanded business model. Clearview wants to expand beyond scanning faces for the police saying in a presentation it could monitor gig economy workers, it could do research for new technologies that could analyze how people walk, so this is known as gait analysis, and also detect their location from a photo and scan their fingerprints. So this is from uh, their own presentation that they gave back in December. So you can see where this is, is going. It's kind of going in that dystopian direction that you've just pointed out, Ryan, and in fact it, it can have widespread implications that go beyond law enforcement. But there's also probably fantastic potential here, right? I mean, is do we need to pursue a, a balanced conversation? I mean, I guess with things like this, I see red flags everywhere, but there's also probably a ton of positives. Yeah, so let's talk about some other um, use cases for facial recognition technology. And let's just start with a really benign and kind of a fun one. 
so some of us uh, use Snapchat or Instagram. There's all kinds of filters that you can put uh, on your face, like, you know, fun uh, features and ears and mustaches. And, and that's kind of like a fun uh, application of facial recognition technology. Um, it's also being used to, um, it's very useful technology whenever you want to identify someone. Um, this isn't without controversy as well, but for example, um, students who are doing uh, exams at home and they need to be monitored, you could use a facial recognition technology as part of a proctoring software to monitor people doing an online exam, enabling them to take their exam at home. So those are just a couple of examples of other things outside of that law enforcement context. Hmm. Uh, a viewer by the name of Nick right now on our YouTube live chat says, I might go back to wearing a mask in public to avoid that. I wouldn't be surprised if a significant number of people took steps moving forward to do their best to fly under the radar, not necessarily because they have something to hide, but just because it's a little bit disconcerting and maybe for reasons people can't quite put their finger on. It absolutely is. I mean, the sad thing, and I, I don't know if this is 100% true, but Clearview claims that it's been able to um, unmask people, um, which is really disconcerting. They're, they're working on technology that will kind of fill in the gap of the rest of your face, even if you have a mask on. Um, I, and again, I don't know. This is a company that's done a lot of things that are, are quite controversial and not necessarily above board. So whether that's true or not, um, I'm not sure. But I think this is a response that people have. They, they feel like they have to push back in some way. And so I think it's a really legitimate response to have. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that you're, uh, you've are uh, you obviously been doing a ton. When we announced that you were coming on the show, people were like, oh, she's the best. She's the best. And I know that you've uh, been one of the experts that uh, has, has participated and really elevated that AI ethics uh, certification through PowerEd at Athabasca University. What are some of the other ethical considerations that you really wish was on people's radar or maybe some of the ethical conversations as people are talking about this around the weekend dinner table or around the campfire circle or whatever it is, because you know how people go, right? We see these stories in the news and we talk about it with our friends and we talk about things we've heard or things that we wonder about, but you can help us hone in our focus. What are some of the ethical considerations that maybe the general public is not aware of or not discussing that you really wish we would be? Yeah, so imagine a world where we're using, one of the other big selling features of this technology is it's convenient. You can use it to unlock things like your phone and maybe one day we'll use it for banking, we'll use it for all kinds of things. So we've hear, we hear a lot of stories about hacks that happen, passwords that get stolen, but imagine if your face was stolen, your face is now your password, your biometric is your face. It's easy to change your password, relatively speaking, not so easy to change your face. So I think we should be having conversations about where it's appropriate to use this technology and for what purpose so that we're not put in that kind of a situation. So that's one thing. I also think this issue about data is really interesting and to what degree we feel comfortable participating in this kind of new datafied economy and to what degree we want to opt out. And I think people should have a choice uh, be able to make that choice. So that goes back to the ethical principle of autonomy, being able to make good decisions about yourself. So I think that's a really um, another really important piece of the conversation to have. Hmm. Haas with an interesting point says the thing about this in public, there's no expectation of privacy. And I appreciate my right to photograph anything I experience within the public domain. Uh, and it kind of takes me back to what I was wondering. The, the, the dialogue in my head is you're talking about how Clearview has gleaned these hundreds of millions of images or however many they have. And it's not like the Google Maps car that drives through the neighborhood and photographs every house or, or documents the street. It's gleaning or harvesting from what people have willingly put out there, right? I mean, like I might not think that when I post a selfie that it's going to be co-opted or, or, or snagged by an AI company to profit off or to add to a database. That's not the degree to, you know, to, to which I would contemplate it. But at the same time, I put it out there. Do people need to be more considerate or more thoughtful, I should say, about what they put out there regarding surrendering their own personal information? I think they do need to be, I think it's good to be thoughtful in general. So let's just say that. I think it's always good to think about the fact that when you put something on the internet, it can be accessed by pretty much anyone and, and used for different purposes. However, I think there's something to be said for this whole idea of the secondary uh, use of data. So I put it out there 
under a particular set of terms with a particular set of expectations. And now someone else has decided that they're going to change those terms and, change, and have other expectations. And I think that that is something that we do need to question. This is new territory. And a lot of times when we have new technologies, it pushes us into new territory, pushes us into novel situations that we haven't considered yet fully as a society. And I think it's good to have that conversation and also maybe change things. Maybe that's not what we want to do. We haven't necessarily had this conversation democratically speaking. So I think that we do need to have um, some pushback on that. Katrina, I'm so grateful that you made time for us today and helped us understand this. I, I can guarantee uh, that we're going to be circling back to get you here on a panel because this is just I mean, you're, you're going to tell me there's a rich tradition of AI and there's a ton of amazing stuff going on. But for the average person, uh, this is the new frontier. Right. And we're just starting to understand this stuff. And I'm grateful for analysis that hits us where we're at on the ground level, at the layperson's level, which is, is so important. Uh, Katrina Ingram is the CEO of Ethically Aligned AI. You can check out what they're doing. Amazing website, by the way, Katrina. EthicallyAlignedAI.com. And you can learn more about the AI Ethics micro-credential through PowerEd at Athabasca University there. Thanks for making time for us today. Thanks so much, Ryan. Oh, hey, actually, wait. Can I put you on the spot on something? This, sure. This has nothing to do with AI. Um, okay. Maybe it has a little bit to do with ethics. Check this out. This is my live, uh, unofficial unscientific twitter poll right now okay i'm asking folks on the eve of earth day will you be doing something specific to recognize earth day look at this katrina 3.8 percent say yes like under four <laughs> however 35 percent say every day is earth day so that's good that sort of restores my faith here but 62 percent so far say honestly no uh, to poll our guests today will you do anything specific for earth day this week well i'm gonna have to do something now ryan <laughs> i feel obligated to <laughs> Well, I guess if I asked you, I better do something too. <laughs> okay, my friend. Thanks for this. Great Thank to see you. your face. That's Katrina Ingram, the CEO of Ethically Aligned AI. As mentioned, named this year, 2022, one of the uh, top 100 women in AI ethics. I did a quick search while we were talking, uh, went on to Athabasca University's website. You can find them at AthabascaU.ca, Canada's online university. You know this on demand on the schedule that works for you. Uh, one of the easiest ways to find out if Athabasca U is a good fit for you is you go check out the search tool. I'm going to do this live. So so I just click on the uh, magnifying glass there on the, and I'm just going to type in AI. Let's say you're inspired by this conversation. There's like the micro credentials. Then there's the courses. There's the bigger picture here. A hundred search results for AI wow. at AthabascaU.ca, right? AI ethics. You can get into that. The solution to AI gone wrong. AI here to help post-secondary educators not to take over. Canada's first micro-credential in AI ethics. What about this? Student financial aid or a Q&A on AI-powered cooperative learning experiences. You get the idea. More than 100 search results just on AI at AthabascaU.ca. Maybe this is the year where your career leaps forward and it all starts with Athabasca University. Our friends at Infinity Healthcare want to introduce you to their team. Check out infinity-8.ca to learn more about the services they provide and the folks providing those services. They take their business seriously. It's personal for them. Isabella, the CEO and RN, Punam. Punam runs the business side of this, and I've had a chance to talk to her before. She's the one quarterbacking the personality matching service. So you've got a loved one that wants to age in place, wants to stay home, but maybe there's been a language barrier with care providers in past. Maybe there's cultural or religious sensitivities. Maybe there's just a reason that the previous caregiver relationship has not worked. This team at Infinity works tirelessly to find a perfect fit. You can click on the sponsors tab on our website to learn more about Infinity Healthcare. Our friends at Friesen Brothers, we've been talking a lot about family-owned businesses today. And of course, that's a big part of the real talk stable of sponsors. It's people that have started from the grassroots and grown these iconic businesses. That includes Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province of Alberta for more than 65 years, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. I want to direct your attention to their new Healthy Insight initiative. You want to live a healthier life? Where does that begin? Friesen Brothers is making an opportunity available by way of their website, Friesen.com. You can learn more about how to register for one of those great events. And our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park know that 
I probably don't have to remind you. They've got treats available any time, and as the weather turns, it may be time to check out the Poolside Punch Twisty Misty Slush. Twisty Misty? <laughs> sounds, that sounds like a great band name. Twisty, it's like Twisted Sister, Twist. Anyway, I digress. Looks absolutely incredible. The Fruity Blast Dipped Cone, also just in time for spring at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and in Sherwood Park at Baseline Road. And our final shout out today, the team at Park Power. They've been powering our hashtag RealTalkRJ since this show started. And when we talk about what we can do here, it's Earth Week, tomorrow officially Earth Day. You want to take some action. You want to do something so you can live with yourself. If you check out parkpower.ca, you can learn more about how they're integrating sustainable energy into their consumer offerings, including their solar rebate, the buyback plan. It's a great partnership with Kubi Energy and other solar providers. At parkpower.ca, you can compare rates on internet, electricity, and natural gas. They'll switch your business over. No awkward phone calls with your current providers. And the promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill via parkpower.ca. Coming up tomorrow, we will review the results of this Twitter poll. So far, holding strong, 61% of respondents say they're not going to do anything specific to recognize Earth Day. We'll see if that changes. We've got a roundtable on blockchain and cryptocurrency, the politics of it, and other implications. Sapria Devetti in her regular spot at 840 Mountain, and comedian, this guy a beauty, Paul Mercurio, kicks us off on Friday's Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, technical producer John Hicks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Lawrence Sterlego, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.